All right. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Mary. Mary does a great job helping out down there. It's a big deal. Looking forward to it. Hey, good morning, Hillcrest family. Morning. Happy Mother's Day. It's good to see you guys. And, uh, and if you're wondering, I, I wear a suit one time a year. It happens one time a year. And you're wondering, we didn't see you wear a suit on Easter, David. You just look like normal plain clothes, jeans, a dress shirt. Once a year on Mother's Day, uh, I wear a suit. And you heard Jack mention, this is a big deal. Uh, just CareNet. We, we love uh, the opportunity to partner with an organization that's trying to meaningfully engage uh, in, in an area uh, that advocates for pro-life. And this is a meaningful way that we get to participate in uh, providing resources to an organization that, that engages in that way. Um, and, uh, and, and it touches close to home for me. Um, yeah, again, so I wear a suit on Mother's Day. Um, and, and so I'm thankful, right, for, for mothers that are in our lives and, and the journey of motherhood. Uh, but this day also provided challenges for, for my wife and I for, for a few, for, yeah, for a few years. Uh, so we've been married 12 years, and, and I remember uh, maybe for the first eight of those, uh, Mother's Day wasn't always the, the, the thing that we would want to celebrate. And, and we could remember people... Uh, well-intended, encouraging, you know, what, when, when are you guys going to grow your family? And, and we would often respond, you know, uh, we're just taking our time, right? Uh, to whatever degree that meant different things for different people. And, and so, uh, so for me, uh, Mother's Day is a special day. It's a big deal. Uh, and so I wear a suit more for my benefit. Maybe you, some of you are like, we would love you to wear a suit all the time. I wear it once a year because it is a special day. Uh, uh, both in the reality of, of God's faithfulness to motherhood, but also in his faithfulness even in the absence of what we believed, what we wanted in our time, God continued to be faithful. And so just a demonstration ultimately of his faithfulness and a celebration of his work and his timing. And, uh, and then uh, through the, their journey of infertility and then also ultimately the foster adopt process, God, uh, God grew our family in ways that we wouldn't have imagined uh, on this side of it ended up being incredibly special. So wherever God has you in your journey in this, uh, I hope you believe God sees you and, and that he knows your story and that he is walking intimately uh, wherever you might find yourself. And so Mother's Day, you will see me in a suit every year. Uh, and coming up, annual meeting. If you, if you call Hillcrest home, we would love to see you May 22nd for our annual meeting. This is just a teaser. We'll, we'll hand out a packet uh, of, of where God has continued to be faithful to our community as we look ahead to the coming years. And uh, I was talking to one of our staff members, and they said, David, you said that illustration. We've never heard that before. I'm like, well, I, I can't, I say it all the time, but maybe it was new. So I, I want to share an illustration for me that kind of captures who we are around here. And, and it's the distinction between a cruise ship and a battleship. And a lot of us maybe go cruising around Christmas time or in the winter to try and get to warmer climates. But then we confuse the cruise ship for the local church. That what, what is the local church? The local church isn't a teaching and singing event that happens on a Sunday. Right? It's not a program to attend. It's not a place to attend. It's the people of God sitting under the authority of the word, gathering weekly in homes, Monday to Saturday, and then we collectively come back here on Sundays. And so sometimes we confuse the local church for a cruise ship. And that's usually epitomized by three questions. 
Do I like it? You know, if that guy talking on Sunday just talked a little bit slower, we would enjoy it a little bit more. And what do I get? What's the benefit to me? What am I getting out of this? And we have this consumer mindset, like we're on a cruise ship eating our buffet at all times of the day. And then we ask, am I comfortable? Are my felt knees getting taken care of? Is there, a, is there something for me versus, and I understand the illustration's dated because the battleship's not necessarily a modern day warfare uh, tool, but it's still, the illustration is captured for me because it changes the essence of the question. It says, is the mission right? Is what this local church family cares about, is it a mission that I get excited about to be people helping people find life with Jesus one life at a time? And do the captain, plural, not singular, plural, our elders, do the captain and staff take orders from God? I was talking this week, if you're aware of just some of the, some of the circumstances that are happening in our culture. I talked to a former co-worker, um, a, a, a former student of mine, and then someone on our, on our uh, one of the parents on the, the coach, uh, the, the soccer team that I help coach, that I assistant coach for, my son asked me, Dad, are you our head coach? I said, no, I'm an assistant. I know nothing about soccer or baseball, basketball, volleyball, I'm in. But Dad, what does that mean? I say, I give high fives and waters about what it means for an assistant coach. <laughs> but, but do we take orders? I had three conversations this week, and it looks significantly different than how it looks here on Sunday. Um, it, it looks more like asking questions. And so all I was doing, I was trying to investigate to understand someone's worldview around the pro-life, pro-choice positions. And at the end of the day, when you ask far enough, the basis for, for the position never seems to be the authority of the text, but rather the ultimate authority tends to be themselves, me. And I go around here, what we're trying to do, do we take orders from God? Week in, week out, we gather under the authority of the text to hear from God through his word. Sometimes it's just offensive to all of us. And we're trying to understand where is God communicating his perspective and how do we understand that in our day-to-day? And will I have significant opportunities to contribute? Because around here, the hope is every guest becomes a connected serving member, that there's greater connection that actually leads to greater joy. Uh, Around here, anonymity is not a value. We are a church family. The Bible refers to, to followers of Jesus as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the question is, will I have significant opportunities to contribute towards this mission? And we're not a cruise ship. We are, in a sense, a battleship trying to move in a direction and join God with where he is headed. So I hope you join us in an annual meeting. If that isn't compelling enough, ice cream will be offered. And so maybe that will be a compelling offer. But May 22nd, would love to see you there if you call Hillcrest home, just to be a part of where God, we believe God is taking us this coming year. So we are headed in the James We are wrapping up, James, in June. We will be done. We are coming to the conclusion of this letter, and and I have loved just seeing the movement of James. Faith works when I'm tested. Faith works when I love. Faith works when I speak. And faith loves when I persevere. And so you might have seen last week, Ryan put up uh, a slide with a, a dumbbell, right? These are dumbbells, right? Yes, are these dumbbells? So I don't actually lift. I don't go to the gym. I play basketball from time to time. I don't understand you people that love lifting these heavy things for fun. It just makes no sense to me. But a dumbbell is on here. Why? 
Because it's the sense of perseverance that I imagine you people that actually lift these things, you don't do it because it's fun in and of itself, but you have an eye on what you're trying to accomplish. Namely, become stronger, more fit, whatever that reason might be, there is something that propels you that motivates you to lift heavy things in the moment. I think the same is true with James. He's been challenging us. Faith works when we're tested. That in the moment by moment, it's not the circumstances, the pain or the hurt that's bringing joy. It's actually believing the God of the universe is actually at work in and through those circumstances to draw us more to himself. Faith works when we're tested. And so James is now finishing his letter. Faith works when we persevere. And so around here, you heard me say, we, we desperately strive to understand and hear from God through his word. And I think this Sunday in particular, happy Mother's Day, it's going to be a tough text this morning. In this particular text, it gives us a, a window into why that matters so much. Because in the text, you guys have heard me talk about my deck before, right? Ad nauseum. You're like, will you just stop talking about the deck already? But hypothetically, Casey and I are sitting out on the deck, and, and we get into an argument. I mean, I, I know none of you guys fight, right? That never happens in your guys' world. So hypothetically, we are having a disagreement, an argument, uh, about, and, and this part's real. The next part won't be, but this part's real. We're having a disagreement about, you know, I should probably pick up the dog poop a little bit more in the yard. And, and it's just scattered out. My kids are running around. They're like, David, it's, dad, it's like a landmine out there. There's, I'm like, guys, I'm just, I'm just trying to provide some fertilizer for the lawn. I'm just really thinking of you guys. I'm thinking of our house, but we're out there and we're just getting frustrated at each other, right? We're going back and forth. And then Casey says this, Hypothetical, right? Casey says this. She says, David, why don't you just go jump in the pond? Jump in the lake. <laughs> to which I go, okay, and off I go running to that pond, and I jump in, and I'm coming out soaking wet. My hair is flopping all over the place, right? I come out, and then she looks at me and goes, why'd you just jump in the lake? I, and I would say, because you told me to. To which she would say, that's not what I meant. Someone first service said something about, it's because you're not picking up the dog poop. That was what it, <laughs> but, but she would say, that's not what I meant. Who's right? So I do this in every premarital counseling that I do. So you guys are getting some free premarital counseling here. It, it's about communication. And that, that usually we would say both are right. But here's my conviction, is that Casey... Though she said, go jump in a lake, though those are her words, she actually had meaning attached to the ideas. And so as a listener, she's right. They're her ideas, and I'm trying to understand the author's intent. I think that would alleviate so much communication issues all across the globe. If we just get that fundamental issue, we are fighting for author's intent. And so this morning... We are going to fight to understand the author, James' intent, because it could be a little blurry. One other illustration of author's intent that happened around our staff recently. So, so I, I, was, I was just feeling under the weather one day. And so Fred and I were talking on Saturday, Friday, like, Fred, you might have to step in. And so I show up here. I show up on Sundays, and I'm like, man, you know, I'm doing okay. Fred comes and checks in on me. He says, Dad, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I took, 
I took some painkillers. And Fred gets this wide look on his eyes like, David, should you have driven here? Like, are you, are you okay? Like, is, is that, I mean, do you need to go home? Like, do we need to have someone take you home if you're popping painkillers? I'm saying, yeah, I took two of them. Two of them? You took two painkillers? And I said, yeah, you know, ibuprofen? I mean, Fred goes, that is not a painkiller. That is not a painkiller. <laughs> Author's intent makes all the difference. And so today, James has a word. He says, woe to the rich. He says, come now, you rich. The question we're asking is, who is he addressing? Who is the rich he's addressing? And why is he addressing them? So here's the text. Author's intent. I love this stuff. We are fighting to understand what God is saying through his word and apply it to our lives. So here's what James says in James 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Happy Mother's Day. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And it's two texts. We're going to do 7 to 12 next week. We're doing 1 to 6 this week. But I wanted to include verse 7 to help see the turn. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Here's where I think we're headed this morning that James is giving a prophetic condemnation, a prophetic word to people who are achieving and using worldly wealth outside of a kingdom perspective. He's, he's condemning a prophetic condemnation, though they're not his readers. He's giving a prophetic condemnation to those who are using their wealth outside of a kingdom perspective as an encouragement to the oppressed Christians to trust God's justice and his, you heard Ryan last week, penned versus pencil plans to trust God's penned plans leading to their patient perseverance and some might even say joy in the midst of suffering. Let me read that one more time because that's where we're headed. Why does he give this little insert about woe to the rich? Because he's given a prophetic condemnation to those using world, uh, having a, uh, an empire, having a worldly use of their resources and he's still writing to his, his first century Christian readers. Why? As an encouragement to them as they trust God's justice and plans that actually produces a patient perseverance and joy in the midst of suffering. So pray with me as we, uh, as we dive into the text. God, you are so good. Thank you for who you are. Your, your words to us are life. Where else would we go? We want to sit and hear from you. And so reveal yourself and the encouragement we need through James' words. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so here's, here's where we'll start. To whom it may concern. Who, who is James actually intending this for? You heard what I believe. Come now, you rich. That he's intending to address this this. This prophetic condemnation about their future. They're not fully experiencing that now, but this condemnation about the eternity of those who continue to use worldly-minded with their resources. 
And, and so you're going, David, where'd you get that? Because if you open up your ESV or whatever translation you have, we use the ESV around here. I think it's a great translation, but I think there's other great translations too. If you open up, the title given to this section is a warning to the rich. So the way the ESV translators are translating this is as this is written to the, the, the wealthy within the local body versus a prophetic condemnation, which is how other people take it. So I tend to go, it's a prophetic condemnation of those who are using the wealthy who are living with this worldly mindset and the use of their resources. Because in James 4, he says this to the church, you adulterous people. You, you, are, you are choosing something over than God, but how do we know it's still to his people? Shortly after, he says to those followers, but God gives grace. Even in your poor choices, God continues to give grace. Last week, instead, you ought to say, he gives a, he gives a thought about how we plan. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And then next week, we're going to get a fuller picture but in verse 7, he finishes this little section by saying, be patient, brother. So he returns back to his first century Christian readers. But for six verses, he's giving this prophetic woe against the rich and the injustices they are taking out against an oppressed people. Because you guys understand the middle class didn't exist, right, in the first century? There was like this super 3% upper crust, 7% of those retired military or tradesmen, but 70 to 90% of the population was living, was living in abject poverty. And so they would go to work for a rich landowner. Jesus tells us a parable about it. And they would work all day for one denarii. What would happen if they didn't get paid? They didn't have small claims court to go make a, make a, a case against. They just said, okay, all right. And for whatever reason, that individual might have been oppressing his people working the farm. And so James is giving a prophetic woe against those people to encourage the injustices being experienced. So here's the accusations he begins to develop. Are you guys interested in this kind of stuff? Oh man, I can't get enough of this stuff. The Because then we apply it, right? We apply it in our Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday. So he says, if that is prophetic woe, the misuse of wealth and power brings God's judgment. Here's where he says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Is that experience of those that treasure Jesus? Are we weeping and howling for the miseries that might come upon us? No, we instead long with hope for the anticipation of Jesus' second coming. He says though, as a prophetic utterance, weep and howl for justice is coming. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. That, that for people that think, because can, be, can you have a worldly mindset and, and treasure Jesus? No, those, those are diametrically opposed. Can you use your resources and accumulate them thinking they're going to provide something? No, we, we understand this is a temporary place. And so those that are putting stock in their resources here, James is saying there is justice coming. You think these resources are somehow going to provide an eternity 
Because wealth provides and opens up doors, right? We understand that. But when it comes to eternity, James is saying, they're actually going to, they're going to be evidence against you. These resources can't provide eternity. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Where my mind goes, this idea of hoarding wealth and just collecting and amassing wealth. Because in America, for the most part, we are all wealthy, right? For the most part. And we go, well, I'm not rich. Because the definition we usually use is, well, I don't have as much as them, right? That's usually our definition. I don't have as much as them. And so, for the most part, this is our general experience. So what's James's experience that's not theirs? For the most part, they are working day-to-day, the day-to-day grind. And I remember floating down the Missouri River in Montana, fly fishing. There was this one run where there was this row of just dilapidated, rusty cars. And, and, and as a high schooler, it struck me. Man, just where does this stuff go? You've heard the illustration, right? There's no U-Hauls behind hearses. Right? No matter what you have in this life, you can't take it with you. No matter what it is. John Piper gives this illustration about an art collector or an art, a, a person at a, 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 an art gallery who's walking around taking the paintings off the wall and carrying them under his arm. And someone says, what are you doing? And the guy says, well, I, I'm collecting art. He goes, you understand you can't walk out the doors with it, right? Well, people look at me as if I'm important because I'm carrying these pieces under my arm. The idea that James says they've corroded and your corrosion will be evidence against you. Because he says your gold and your silver have corroded. Those metals don't corrode, right? So what's he saying? You can't take it with you when you go. He continues. There's James' accusation. His second one, behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What's he saying? As they are defrauding farmers, so an example would be someone who was going bankrupt on their field would get bought out and then be forced to work their own field now in a different form of relationship, frauded out by someone who might have had more resources, defrauding workers. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. This cry of injustice, (laughs) crying out for justice. James readers are looking going, how's this work, God? This does not seem fair. I don't understand how justice is being carried out, God. And all the way back in Genesis 4, we see the cry of injustice. Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. And the Lord said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So what's the confidence we have? I think James is trying to encourage his readers. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lords of hosts. We cling so tightly to our plans. Because I think my plans are written in pen, right? If I determine it, I can make it happen. I can will it into existence. Do we believe the cries for injustice are actually being heard by a sovereign God? As we make plans in pencil, he is actually orchestrating things according to his sovereign will. And we cry out to his justice to be accomplished. James continues. Third, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. There is this indulgent living that occurs. Does anybody love ribeye? Oh, can't get enough of ribeye. You guys have heard I've like burned ribeye multiple times. 
Every time Casey's like, why don't we just spend like $40 on steak for you to like burn them to a crisp? Again, you guys know me well enough. I'm like, I just wanted it well done. We just wanted a little like, little, little like crispness to the steak. You need what? One, two ribeyes? What do you do if you bought like 13 ribeyes? What happens to all the ribeyes left over? How much do you need? That indulgent living, James is saying, isn't going to provide any value. Indulgent living, living this life of luxury is a criticism against a woe, a prophetic woe to those oppressive landovers. And, and, and what do you guys think of when you hear, when you hear you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter? What comes to your mind? I can't get enough. What comes to your mind? Oh, man. Those happy pigs, right? They're just content to be eating the slop, enjoying life completely oblivious to a slaughter that's coming so that we can have nice cuts of bacon, right? Completely oblivious. James is saying the same thing about those that are oppressing his, his readers. They are fattened in the day of slaughter. And he gives a fourth. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Who's the he? Some of the commentators took it two ways. They said this is an encouragement to James readers that he being Jesus is an example for us to follow. Jesus, when he was condemned, did not resist his oppressors. Or, on a more practical, pragmatic, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. As a prophetic condemnation to these rich landowners, it's to the sense of, if you're not providing them a meal so they can eat, there's an eventual thing if someone doesn't eat. And so there's this condemnation against these people to encourage James readers, God's justice will be fulfilled, killing the innocents. And so here's, here's our three ideas, and I want to end with some implications for us in this third point to, to tie some implications for us. To whom it may concern, James is writing, and, and it's going to get fleshed out more next week in 7 to 12, that he's providing this prophetic condemnation and the misuse of wealth brings God's judgment. And so we need to change our perspective and be mindful of God in all things. And so for the readers, what was it like for their town? What were they hearing in their town? The empire riches in the kingdom cannot coincide. And when I say empire, we just understand there's empires that have come and gone on this earth, right? We understand that? And I'm not saying anything about a specific empire, just broadly speaking, the world empires in comparison to a kingdom mindset. Empire riches in the kingdom, they can't coincide. Someone who is earthly minded and using their wealth in a temporary way can't coincide with an eternal spiritual kingdom mindset. Instead, those using their resources have a bigger view, understanding these resources don't go with us. Their town, he's encouraging them. Be patient like the farmer. The Lord's anticipated, anticipated return is coming. So live in light of that. May your lifestyle, may your choices reflect that. Find confidence and security in that reality. And then a kingdom of surrender. Do you live in a way that you're holding on to your penned plans? Or have you released those plans? I think there's his encouragement to his readers. Do you have a kingdom mindset of surrendering your plans to an almighty, gracious God? So what does that look like in our lives, in our Monday to Saturday? Does our lifestyle matter more to us for this black tape or orange part of the rope?
So you guys have heard, we've used this illustration before. It comes from Francis Chan, and he, and he just talks about sometimes we get so consumed in, in this black part of the rope, and we, we, we fail to, to see the eternity that's beyond it. And we get so captivated by whatever might be consuming our attention or our resources here and, and what we believe the, the injustices, true injustices that are occurring here. And we feel like we, we are paralyzed to make any progress without sight of God's ultimate plan being worked out. Does our lifestyle and the way we allocate resources and the way we spend our time, treasure, talent, does it reflect that we care more about this black part of the rope? Or the orange part that just goes on. Doesn't just end in that bucket, right? Does our lifestyle reflect that? And do our emotions reflect that we trust a victorious king? But David, you don't know what's going on. <laughs> the, the, the challenges that are taking place. Again, so, so how I interact here is slightly different than how I'd interact in my week to week. You heard me give three situations. And it's predicated a lot by questions. Help me understand where you're coming from. Help me understand why you believe what you believe. It, it, it's everyday missionaries living their faith out, asking questions, believing people are looking for hope. They're, they're trying to understand the world. And there's a hope in life in Christ that I think is elusive, but for someone to share it. Do our emotions reflect that we trust a victorious king? Or does my anxiousness and my anger override my ability to be, be, be convinced and anchored in a victorious king? And then as the worship team comes up, I just want to reflect on these a little bit in our life. What will our response in a fallen world full of oppressors but as a visitor simply passing through? What will be our response... In a fallen world full of oppressors, but as a visitor simply passing through. As we go through our Monday to Saturday, we are provided opportunities every single day to reflect a response that trusts a victorious king in the midst of injustices or oppressors currently not experienced as fully as I think James readers were. That day might be coming, currently not, might be coming. What will our response be in a fallen world full of oppressors but as a visitor? Does the way we, we live our life reflect that, that these, this life is temporary? <laughs> or are we clinging on to penned plans? Are we clinging on to what we believe might be the best solution or do we continue to join God in what he's doing in lives all around us? Just take a minute to reflect on one of those three questions. God, you are too good to us. If our lifestyle, God, reflects that we are clinging more to this black part of the tape, more than that orange part of the rope, help us, reveal to us where we can continue to cling more to the hope of eternity. Do our emotions reflect that we trust you are victorious? 
God, in Mother's Day, when my hopes and dreams aren't fully where I want them to be, help me to continue to celebrate that you are victorious in all things and that you see and hear the cries of the harvesters. If there are challenges in my job, God, that you know exactly my hopes, my dreams, and help me release my desires increasingly to you to reflect more in my emotions that we trust a victorious king. In the midst of loss, God, if we've lost a family member, a mother, a father, may our emotions continually reflect that we have a hope in you for eternity. And our responses to our day-to-day world in a world that's fallen full of oppressors help us continue to see that we are simply sojourners and visitors passing through. Thank you, Jesus. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.